it doesn't bother me all that much when somebody lies to me because it happens all the time, as it probably also does to you, whether it be one of our kids or somebody out in society or somebody that we're interacting with. You know, people are generally dishonest. And so I don't really mind it when someone lies to me, but I hate it when I'm deceived because I'm pretty good. When someone lies to me, I kind of know, at least I'm getting a partial truth or this is a total whopper, you know, there's no truth in this at all whatsoever. And maybe I can't divine the lines of where truth and error mix on things, but I'm pretty good. But when I'm deceived and someone really pulls the wool over my eyes and something turns out to be something that it is altogether not, that bothers me. Probably more pride than anything else than righteous, you know, anger on things that, 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 you know, I was tricked or deceived. But the bottom line is that we understand that we live in a very deceptive world, a world where things are designed to put up a facade to make us come to conclusions that may or may not be true. And so we live in that kind of a world. I remember being, oh, about 19 years old, and somehow in the activities and rambunctiousness of being that age, I contracted ringworm on my face. And I didn't even know what ringworm was. But it was right here, kind of like above my lip, and it, 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 you know, it kind of just forms as a circle. And for a couple of weeks, people were saying, do you play the trumpet? You know, there was just this weird like circle that was right there. And as it began to expand and grow, I thought, I better get this checked out. I don't know what this is. And as I went to the dermatologist and um, was checked out, this woman in a lab coat that seemed very professional, she won my trust just by walking in the room. She took a few looks. She scraped a little, walked away, came back 20 minutes later and said, I have bad news for you. She said, I think you have lupus and I think it, it might be fatal. And so here I am at 19 years old and I looked at this woman and I just said, are you sure it's not just like ringworm or something like that? And she looked at me and she just kind of like cocked her head sideways for a minute and she just stared at me. And I go, well, what is it? I said, I, didn't, I hope I didn't insult you. And she said, no, I'm just wondering if maybe you have ringworm. And she left the room again for about a half an hour and she came back with great apologies as sure enough, that's what I tested positive for that day, a little antifungal fungicide. I was all cleared up, never came back, you know, n never a problem again. But what I learned that day is that a lab coat, a stethoscope around the neck, doesn't necessarily mean that someone is God, that they know exactly what it is that they're talking about. But there are things that people do that make them appear to be perhaps more than what they are or something altogether different than what they are. You know, I think sometimes of the churches that people go to or the churches that exist in the United States of America. You maybe move to a different city with your family and you walk in to this ornate place. You hear the reputation of the man behind the podium. He's the apostle emeritus, the one who started the church in his living room or, you know, in a catering hall or something of that nature. And the church has now grown to be this huge mega structured thing that has a huge budget. And everything on the outside gives the facade or the appearance that this is good. This is a healthy place and that judgment is being made based upon the things that you see, the things that maybe you even hear. But upon time playing out 
and things unfolding and truth being uncovered, facades being removed, you find out that this man that has built this massive mega ministry that you have put your trust in and, and allowed your family to come under the shadow of it, you find out that for a long time now, he's been taking things to keep that energy and that power going to keep the thing moving down the tracks. You find out that him and his wife have been on the rock sleeping in separate rooms, maybe not even in the same house for nobody knows how long. And that his salary has been being boosted constantly to support the habits. And there's even some things going on in the side. And as all of that comes out, there's something that rises up inside and you wonder and you say, how was I deceived by this? You were deceived because there was deception. Because we live in a deceptive world. Deception is defined as appearances and actions that are intended to mislead, usually by someone who's trying to get what they want. That's what deception is. And we live in a world of deception, and it's no wonder. The Bible tells us that this world that we live in is controlled by and governed and ruled by Satan himself. Jesus called him the prince of the power of the air. The Apostle Paul called him the God of this age. And Jesus, the truth, tells us concerning Satan, the one who controls what goes on here on earth, that Satan was a liar, that's a deceiver, a thief, and a murderer from the beginning. A liar, that is that he deceives, a thief, that is he's trying to get something, and a murderer, which means that he'll do whatever it takes to get it. And if he's in control of this world, then it shouldn't surprise us that we live in a world of deception and of facades. And so the question for you and I, as those that are in this world, and hopefully not of it, is how can we avoid deception? How can we avoid being deceived? Can we avoid being deceived? And what happens if we don't? What happens to us when we are? And so chapter 27, as we come to this chapter in Genesis, it's a chapter on deception but in it, we find the truth that sets us free. Notice what's going on. We begin in verse 1. It tells us that it came to pass that when Isaac was old and that his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his eldest son, and said unto him, My son. And he said unto him, Behold, here am I. And he said, Behold, now I am old, and I know not the day of my death. Now, therefore, take, I pray thee, thy weapons, thy quiver and thy bow, and go out to the field and make me some venison, and make me savory meat, such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat, that my soul may bless thee before I die. And Rebekah, that is Isaac's wife, heard when Isaac spoke to Esau his son, and Esau went to the field to hunt for venison and to bring it. And Rebekah spoke unto Jacob, her son, saying, Behold, I heard thy father speak unto Esau, thy brother, saying, Bring me venison and make me savory meat that I may eat and bless thee before the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to that which I command thee. Go now to the flock and fetch me from thence two good kids of the goats. And I will make them savory meat for thy father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father, Jacob, that he may eat and that he may bless you before his death. 
And Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, Esau, my brother, is a hairy man, and I'm a smooth man. My father, peradventure, will feel me, and I will seem to him as a deceiver, and I'll bring a curse upon me and not a blessing. And his mother said unto him, Upon me be thy curse, my son, only obey my voice and go fetch me them. What we find right here at the onset of things is we see a family that is supposed to be a family of God, a family of four, and we find them here, all four of them, out of sync with God. This Christian family, supposed to be God's representation on the earth, and all four of them are out of sync with his purpose and his will. Isaac, we're told the occasion of the events is that his health is starting to fail. We're told that his eyes are dim and that he's not seeing things as clearly as he ought. He's feeling a little bit weaker. He's well over the age of 100 at this point, probably about the age of 140. And he feels like his time is short and he wants to set his affairs in order. And so he takes things into his hand and he begins this ball rolling of passing the baton, of passing on the blessing to successive generations. But what we see is that at this point in his life, he's completely out of touch with God. We find no mention of God coming and speaking to Isaac and telling him to get his affairs in order and to pass the blessing on to his son. There's no mention of prayer that he was talking to God and God led him in this way. There's no leading and there's not even a sense of God's will on things because we already know that what Isaac is endeavoring to do is not what God wanted. God had said from the very beginning that the older will serve the younger. It was already the revealed will of God that the blessing was to go to Jacob and not to Esau. And so we see Isaac completely out of touch with God. We see him also drawing his inspiration from the wrong source. You see what he's looking for here in order to find within him the stirring of the spirit in order to pronounce this blessing? He doesn't ask for fellowship with God. He doesn't build an altar and offer a sacrifice. But rather, he says to his son Esau, he says, hey, fill my belly so that I can be motivated by the fullness and then bring to you the blessing of God upon your life. The well that he's drinking from at this point in his life is not the well of God's spirit, but rather the well of the feelings of his flesh. His inspiration is coming from his body, the things that he'll be satisfied with. The things that we're supposed to draw our inspiration from are not the stomach, Do you guys understand that? It's supposed to be the Spirit of God. Those are the things that are supposed to drive us. And the truly spiritual person is not driven to spiritual things by the filling or fulfilling of fleshly appetites. But we see that in Isaac here. Then we see Rebecca. We see his wife and her. She hears troubling words. She hears her husband say something that she knows is outside of the will of God. But rather than looking up to God, falling on her knees and saying, Lord, do you hear what my husband is about to do? He's about to make a major mistake against something that you've previously spoken. Instead of looking up, Rebecca looks around. And she looks at how she can take things into her own hands, manipulate the situation, and turn things to be the way she thinks they ought to be. And so she becomes a manipulator in this whole thing. She looks around at the circumstances, she hears the words of her husband, and she says to herself, over my dead body, 
will the blessing be given to Esau? I'm going to fix this. And she begins hatching a plan to turn things in the will of God, of course. Then we see Jacob, the third member of this family, the man who would become the patriarch, the head of the 12 tribes of Israel, the great Jacob of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Where do we find him at this stage of his life? Well, we find him, first of all, if you do the math, he's between 60 and 80 years old at this point. And we find him single, still living at home. Failure to launch. I mean, he's got a serious syndrome here of being a mama's boy just a little bit too long. A man who lacks some gumption, a little bit of inspiration, you know. The other thing that we see in Jacob here at this stage of his life is that he's still basing his spiritual behavior on what other people are giving him guidance to do. His mother is coming and saying to him, hey, son, I want you to do this and I want you to do it this way. And at this point in his life, he doesn't have enough of a relationship and connection to God to bring those things to God and say, God, is this your will for me? And is this the way that I'm to go about them? But he's still in that place where he says, well, these people are more spiritually mature than me. And so I can trust them and I don't need to check what they say based upon what God says or against what God says. There's a lot of people like that, even in the world that we live in today. They're way beyond that stage of infancy in their Christianity, but they still base the words of other people equal to or above what God has revealed in his word and what he's spoken. So we see Jacob here aligning his actions with what other people's opinions are and not bringing them to God himself. No mind to prove if it's right. If mom says it, if pastor says it, then I just do it. I don't even check with God. And then, of course, we see Esau, the fourth member of the family. And Esau is the man who just doesn't care at all. He could care less what God thinks, what God wants, what God says. Esau is about Esau. Esau does what Esau wants. As he has done, so shall he do. Now, Satan looks on at this family, this trophy of God's grace, this representation that will one day be the Messiah. And I picture him just sitting back and smiling, looking at those that are around him and saying, do you see the condition that these folks are in? He goes, watch this. This is going to be great. I've got my popcorn. Let's see what happens. And so now here comes the outplaying of the events as the deception takes place. Verse 14. It says that he went, Jacob, and he fetched and he brought them to his mother. And his mother made savory meat such as his father loved. And Rebekah took goodly raiment. That's good quality clothing that belonged to her eldest son, Esau which were in her house, or with her in the house, and she put them upon Jacob, her younger son, younger by minutes. And she put the skins of the kids of the goats upon the hands and upon the smooth of the neck. Now, that tells us something right there, the kind of hairy man that Esau was. Now, I've seen hairy men before, but I ain't never seen this. You know, someone that actually could be mistaken for a goat, you know, on things. He's got to get his T-levels checked, right? He's got something going on. A little overactive thyroid or something. (laughs) And it says that she gave the savory meat and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. And he came unto his father and he said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you? My son? And Jacob said unto his father, I am Esau, thy firstborn. 
I have done according as thou badest me. Arise, I pray thee, sit and eat of my venison, that thy soul may bless thee. The first lie that Jacob brings to his father, he says outrightly, I am Esau, thy firstborn. And so Jacob lies outrightly with the intent to deceive. And Isaac said unto his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he said, Because the Lord thy God brought it to me. There's lie number two, and it gets a little bit stronger, doesn't it? A lie is always intensified and strengthened when God is brought into lie. I wonder how God feels about this. How many lies God is brought into? People say, I swear to God. In the meanwhile, what they're saying is absolutely false. There's no truth in it at all. But when someone swears to God or brings God into it, it adds strength to the statement that they're saying, and it wears down people's resistance to their lie. And then it says that Isaac said unto Jacob, Come near, I pray thee, that I may feel thee, my son, whether you be my son Esau or not. Something isn't adding up here. I can't see it with my eyes, but come over close. And so Jacob went near unto Isaac, his father, and he felt him. Apparently he didn't feel the pulse rate. And he said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And it says in verse 23, and it says, he discerned him not. In other words, the deception holds. His reason is overruled by what he feels when he touches his hands and he believes him. It says, because his hands were hairy as his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. And he said, are you my very son Esau? One final attempt at truth. And Jacob's third lie, he said, I am. And he said, bring it near to me, and I will eat of my son's venison, that my soul may bless thee. And he brought it near to him, and he did eat, and he brought him wine, and he did drink. And thus, the deception now holds as Jacob is received He's brought before Isaac. Isaac eats of the meat, drinks of the wine that Jacob gives, and now prepares to bring him the blessing. Deception. Deception is brought over this Christian man's heart and mind in order to get something from him that he otherwise wouldn't have given. Now, Rebecca, his wife, in this narrative... She knows this man, just like our spouses, they know us so well. They know what makes us tick. They know the way we operate. And what Rebecca realizes about her husband Isaac is that he is predominantly, at least at this stage of his life, a man that follows his feelings and is governed by the appetites of his flesh. And therefore, she knows that she's able to deceive him because she can play upon those vulnerabilities that he has. And she knows if she plays it just right, she can get him to believe following his appetite and his human sensitives. She realizes that his appetite and his feelings are stronger at this stage than his ability to discern the truth of a situation. He has a reservation when Jacob comes to him. The check engine light goes on that something's not right here, but yet his feelings triumph over the words that he hears and it says that he discerned him not. Do you, Christian, understand that there are forces in this world that want to deceive you? And not only do they want to deceive you, but they have the resources and the ability to bring deception to pull the wool over your eyes. 
And you and I, in the light of that, we have a vulnerability. What's our vulnerability? Our vulnerability is much like Isaac was. First of all, it says that his eyes were dim, that he couldn't see clearly. And though that might not be true of us physically, we can have 20-20 vision with our natural eyes. Yet we don't have perfect vision as to what's going on in the invisible realms, the motives that people have, the truth of the error behind the things that they say, what's really going on in a scene or a situation. We don't have the ability to see beyond the surface. And thus, just like Isaac had a vulnerability in his eyes, so spiritually we also have that same vulnerability. Isaac had a carnal appetite. He liked to eat. He liked specifically his son's venison. And he had a weakness for it. And when it was in his presence, his senses were dulled that much more. You and I, we also have this thing that the Bible calls our flesh. And though we're born again, that doesn't necessarily take away the appetites that we have. And when those appetites are aroused, or we're in a stage of our life where we're given maybe over to those things a little bit more, it wears down our senses and our strength a little bit more, making us that much more vulnerable. We have a carnal appetite, and we also have sometimes misguided feelings. Misguided feelings. Well, for Isaac, we understand what that meant. He heard something. He knew something wasn't right. He asked for a little bit more. He came. He touched Jacob, but Jacob was prepared for that. And then the feeling of Jacob was enough to deceive Isaac, just enough to push him over the edge to believe the lie. Well, again, for Isaac, it's physical. For you and I, maybe it's emotional or maybe it's spiritual. Our feelings can deceive us. When we trust in the way that we feel about something or the way a particular setting or the inflection in someone's voice or the appearance of their face when they come across to us, we can feel like what we're seeing or being presented with is legitimate when in fact maybe it's not. Sometimes it can go the other way. We can feel like something is not legitimate, like it's crooked, when in fact maybe it is. Why? Because our feelings are not a very good telltale as to what's really going on under the surface. We have a vulnerability. So we have limited sight, we have carnal appetites, and we have ability, the ability to be misled by our feelings, and thus we are vulnerable of deception. And when you couple that with the fact that this world has a desire to deceive and the resources and knowledge of knowing how to do it, it makes a recipe for deception. We can be deceived and it happens now we know that deception happens in the physical realm all the time but in the spiritual realm we have an adversary his name is the devil and satan and his desire for you and i is that we are deceived and he uses all of the other things in the world to confuse us to cloud us and make us not to understand what's really going on But at the end of the day, he has two objectives, two deceptions that he wants to pull over the eyes of people. He wants to, number one, deceive those that are not right with God into feeling like and thinking that they are. And that deception is predominantly aimed at the unbeliever. He wants the unbeliever to feel like they're okay with God when they're not. And he does it. He's very, very good at it. And so you'll talk to someone that doesn't know Jesus Christ. And you'll ask them what foundation they're standing on for eternal life. And they will tell you that they pray. They'll tell you that they believe. They'll tell you that they're good people. 
And at the end of the day, after digging a little bit deeper, you'll find that what they're standing upon is the feeling that they have inside that they're right with God. Well, I just feel like I'm okay with God. They're trusting in a feeling and perhaps they're deceived because they're trusting in feelings rather than the fact of what God says it means to be right with him. The other form of deception is not towards those that are not right and think that they are, but to those that think they're not when in fact they are. That's the other way that Satan tries to deceive. That's how he goes after the believer. How many of you in here, after you were born again, ever had a moment, a week, month, a year, maybe even a season where you felt like you weren't saved? (laughs) I know that I have. Sometimes when we are right with God, right in the place that we're supposed to be, he's doing his work, God is, in our hearts to refine, purify, and change us. And as you know and I know, sometimes that process can be painful. And sometimes the pain of that process can eclipse the knowledge of his pleasure that he has in our lives. Well, God, if you're for me, if you love me, if you've saved me, then why do I feel this pain? Why am I going through this trial? Why am I going through this difficulty? And what Satan will do and what he loves to do is he loves to come alongside us in that time when we're naturally, we'd be doubtful of God's pleasure over our lives, and he whispers to us, and he says, you're not saved. But he doesn't do it that way. He's much smarter than that. Do you know how Satan deceives in this way? He comes alongside the believer who's struggling, who's wrestling, and he says to them this, like this, he says, my son, my daughter, I'm so disappointed in you. If you could have just believed, if you could have just stood if you could have just endured, if you could have stood against the temptation, oh, the things that I would have loved to have done in your life. But now I just, I have to put you away. I have to put you aside. You weren't strong enough. You couldn't stand. I'm sorry, but we go, yeah, I am weak. I did fail. I don't deserve. And all of a sudden what happens is our feelings overcome the fact of what God said, and we find ourselves moving away from faith and walking by feelings. We've become deceived, and it opens the door for Satan to do all kinds of other things within our lives. He's a deceiver. He deceives those that are lost into thinking they're found, and he deceives those that are found into thinking that they're lost. And the remedy is that we don't walk by feelings. We walk by facts that are established through faith. That's the way we're called to walk, meaning that what God says trumps what we feel on any given day of the week. We walk according to his word. Do you recognize the error that Isaac made? He felt. He said, the word, the voice is that of Jacob, but the feeling is that of Esau, and he allowed feelings over words. And any time a person, a human being does that, I'm going to go by how I feel on this. I'm going to go with my gut. You're in a dangerous place. We walk by facts. What God has spoken, his word, what we've heard, not what we feel. Our faith is based on facts. So what's our defense? What's the defense for the believer that we're not deceived when deception comes, whether it be something in the world or something invisible in the spiritual realm? How are we defended against deception? Number one, three things if you want to write them down. 
Number one is that we draw our inspiration from the proper source. Remember how this all began? Make me savory meat such as my soul loves that I might bless you before I die. He was drawing inspiration from the things that satisfied his flesh. Understand the truth of it, Christian, is that you cannot satisfy the needs of the body and the soul through the appetites of the body. Jesus, in John's Gospel, chapter 4, was an amazing example of this. They were traveling from the region of Jerusalem back up into the region of the Galilee. It's probably about 70 miles that they were trekking on foot. And they didn't take the direct route, but it says that he must needs pass through Samaria, which was way out of the way because he had an appointment with a single woman by a well. And as he was there, he engages this woman. He reveals who he is to her. A salvation experience and interaction happens between Jesus and this woman. And she runs back to the village without her bucket to tell the men of the city. And as the twelve come to Jesus, who's sitting there by this well, they realize that he hasn't eaten anything for a long time. They had gone themselves to buy food. And so they ask him and they say, hey, have you eaten anything? I mean, you must be starving. It's been so long. And I love Jesus' response. John chapter 4, verse 34. He said, my food, my meat, the thing that satisfies me is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. What Jesus was saying there is this. He's saying, listen, I am so full right now just from being used of God and knowing that I'm in his will that I've forgotten about my human fleshly appetites. Do you understand? He was driven by the will of God, the pleasure of God, the purposes of God for his life, and he walked so well in those things that he forgot about the earthly appetites that he had. Now contrast that with Isaac who's driven by those things. And I ask you tonight, what drives you? What inspires you? Are you filled with God to the point where that drives you more than anything else to know His will? Is that the source of your drive? Or are you motivated and moved by other things? It's a question that we've got to ask ourselves. It's the first way that we're defended from deception is that our inspiration comes from the proper source. We see beyond the borders of the world and thus we're not vulnerable. The second way, number two, if you're writing things down, is to set your eyes up, not out. Set your eyes always up and not out. Be a person who's not looking around and making assessments and coming to conclusions based upon the things that you see going on around you, but rather constantly look up at the one who sees all things as they are and allow him to be your leading, your wisdom, and your direction. Now, again, we see Rebecca. What does she do? She hears something troubling. She knows things are supposed to be a different way. And she immediately begins to look around. How can I manipulate the situation in order to get the outcome that I think is right? Listen. The Bible teaches us that God is God. And did you know that to be God is an incredible responsibility? It takes a lot of responsibility to be God. And you know what I found? Is that he's up for it. He can do it. He goes way out of his way to let us know how involved he is in even the smallest details of making things happen. He says he knows the number of hairs that are on our head. That's a number that changes constantly. He's constantly aware of what's going on, and he has to have that level of knowledge in order to be who he is and do what he does. At the same time, if you and I were to accurately and rightly control the circumstances that are going on in our lives and understand what they are, 
we would have to have that same level of knowledge. And I don't know about you, but I don't have that. And therefore, for me to try to help God to fulfill and complete his will, I'm always going to be in error every time. It's never going to work. I think of even Jesus in this. 5,000 were gathered there on that hillside. They've been with me for three days, and they've got nothing to eat. And the disciples said, Lord, there ain't no way. We're looking around, there's no food. There's no orchard, no crops, anywhere for miles. Send the people away that they might buy food for themselves. And Jesus looked at them and he said, you give them to eat. Now that's a tough set of circumstances, isn't it? And so they begin to pull the multitude. Anybody got any food? And sarcastically, one of the disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, we stole this kid's bagged lunch. He's got five loaves and a few fish, but Lord, what's that among so many? Impossible odds in a tough circumstance faced with a challenge. And you know what Jesus did? He took those loaves and fishes. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 41, it tells us that he took those things, he blessed them, it says that he looked up. He didn't look out. He didn't see the impossibility of the situation. He didn't see how hard it would be to fulfill it or how through natural means it could never be done. He looked up at the one who can do all things, and as he began to bless and break, God began to multiply, and the impossible was completed. Now, yes, we know that it was God's will in this circumstance that Jacob be the one that receives the blessing. Rebecca didn't need to help. If she had ignored the situation or committed it to God, he knew how to work it around in his way. And you know what the amazing thing is? Is that we'll never know what that was. Because that's not the way it happened. And the same thing's true in your life and in mine. When things come up, when circumstances happen, we don't have to take things into our own hand and try to control them. We look up, we lift it to God, and then we get to watch and see how he works with difficult circumstances to bring about his will for our blessing and his glory. And that's the way it's supposed to be. We look up, not out. And then third, we walk by faith in facts not in the feelings of our flesh. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, he said, if you continue in my word, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you what? Free. free. That's right. The truth will make us free. And the more we give ourselves to God's word, and allow God's word to be the framework through which we see all of life, it eliminates the world, the devil, any other force, it eliminates their ability to deceive us because we have the truth of God's word alive in our hearts. In Hebrews chapter 5, there's a passage that for me is life. I love this passage of scripture. It's such an amazing promise. It's kind of a dig from God, but it carries with an amazing promise. He says this, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. He says, Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing that you are dull of hearing. That's a tough word. Someone says that you're dull, you know, you're dull of hearing. He says, For when for the time that you ought to be teachers, that is, teachers of God's word, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, the mysteries of the truths of God. And you have become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk, that is pablum, easy, simple things in the scripture, 
is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat, that is the strength of the word, the depths of what God said, the fullness and completeness of the scripture that God has laid out before us. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, that means mature, even those, listen, here it is, here's the promise, who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Do you understand the promise that's being proclaimed? The truth that's being communicated there in that verse? That as you and I not only just read the word of God for the intellect and the knowledge of what it gives, But when we make it our life to say, God, this is your truth and everything that I need for life and godliness is contained in the scripture. And we let let God write it in our hearts and then we exercise the use of it in our daily lives. The promise is that we then are going to be able to discern what's going on around us. What does it say about Isaac? It says that he discerned him not. Listen, the remedy for deception at its base core, is the Word of God. Not the hearing, not just the reading, but the living it out, walking through, treading through the Word of God. Why? Because then we're walking in facts, not feelings, not appearances, nothing. We're walking in His Word. When we walk in His Word, we cannot be deceived. And thus He tells us there, uh, the, the, the fact that way that we're defended is that we walk by faith in the facts, not the feelings that we feel within our flesh. So what's the outcome and the result of all of this deception that happens? Notice back in our text in verse 26, Genesis 27. It says that his father Isaac said unto him, come near now and kiss me, my son. And so Jacob came near and he kissed him and he smelled the smell of his raiment and he blessed him. And he said, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Therefore, God give thee of the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of corn and wine. Let people serve thee and nations bow down to thee. Be Lord over thy brethren and let thy mother's sons bow down to thee. Cursed be everyone that curseth thee and blessed be he that blesseth thee. He transfers the blessing of Abraham on to now Jacob, the third generation, by pronouncing this blessing, speaking it over his life. But notice in verse 30, it says that it came to pass as soon as Isaac had made an end of blessing Jacob, and Jacob was yet scarce gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father. That would have been a scene, right? Esau walks in and there's Jacob wearing a goat mask, you know? (laughs) What the... And he also had made savory meat and brought it unto his father. And he said unto his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's venison, that thy soul may bless me. And Isaac his father said unto him, Who are you? And he said, I am thy son, thy firstborn Esau. There has never been a soul in the history of humanity that wishes LASIK eye surgery had been invented at this time than Isaac now is. He's like, what in the world is going on here with all these Esau's in my life? (laughs) And it says that Isaac trembled very exceedingly. And he said, who? Where is he that has taken venison and brought it to me? And I have eaten of all before you came and have blessed him. 
yea, and he shall be blessed. Isn't it amazing how quickly truth comes to the light once deception has been embraced? It's amazing, isn't it? I'm always amazed. You know, I'll do something and, ah, I shouldn't have done that. You know, and almost immediately somehow the truth has a way of presenting itself and I feel like such a fool, such an idiot. And it happens here as soon as Jacob... Now, they didn't think very far ahead, did they? Because, man, the truth comes out. What's the outcome of this deception, first of all, in the man Isaac? It tells us in verse 33, it says that he trembles. He trembled exceedingly as he was confused and he realizes this lie has been given to him. He watches his desires fall to the ground and he trembles because he knows what's been done cannot now be undone. There's a trembling that happens in the life of any person that is deceived. One of the occupational hazards that I have being a pastor is that oftentimes I sit across the desk from someone in that very position, someone who's trembling because they realize that they have been deceived. I've watched many young girls marry and they made a decision based upon something that they felt. They maybe ignored the counsel that was given to them by their parents or their pastors, their loved one, about the fact that they were about to walk into an unequal yoking situation. But they're so eager and they're so carried about by the romance of the thing and, and the excitement of moving on to the next stage of life that feelings trump facts. But on the other side of it, they tremble as they realize the oath that I've made, the vow that I've made cannot be undone. And now I'm stuck in this position. I'm stuck in this, 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 this position. How did I get here? Sometimes not the young woman, but a young man who sits across the desk and he says, I find myself in this position. I'm working this job and I don't know how I got here. I don't know how I got into this position, but I'm miserable. You say, well, how did you get into this position? Well, I went through high school. I talked to a guidance counselor. I answered X, Y, and Z on the exam. I went into school for this that seemed to be a good fit. I just followed the flow of what everyone was kind of doing and what the next stage of life is. I took a job. Here I am. I'm married with a house and a couple of kids, and I don't know if this is what I was absolutely made for. I feel like I've been deceived. I feel like I've missed something. There's something wrong. There's something missing. Listen, it can happen. It can happen. We can be deceived into missing God's call for our life. Now, God, if we let him, equips us and keeps us from making those errors. Isaac trembles as he watches his desire fall to the ground. Esau, we read about in verse 34, his response to it, it says, that when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with a great and exceeding bitter cry. And he said unto his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. And he said, my, Thy brother came with subtlety and has taken away your blessing." And he, Esau, said, Is he not rightly called Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said unto Esau, Behold, I have made him thy Lord, and all his brethren have I given to him for servants. And with corn and wine have I sustained him, and what shall I do now for you, my son? I've given him all. And Esau said unto his father, Hast thou but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And Isaac his father answered and said unto him, Behold, thy dwelling shall be the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above, things that can generically be given in prosperity. And by your sword you shall live, and you will serve your brother.'" 
And it will come to pass that when you have the dominion, when you become strong, that you'll break his yoke from off your neck, a thing that will happen for the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, in the future. What's the outcome of deception? How does it touch? How does it affect Esau? Esau was deceived much earlier in life when he could care less about spiritual things. Esau was deceived into thinking that there's nothing more than this earth, that, hey, get as much as you can out of the 70 years or 80 years you get here because there's nothing more on the other side of it. That's the way he lived his life. And what happened is that he came to a place, a point, where he realized that there is an eternity and that there is value in investing and holding spiritual things And now he finds that they have eluded or escaped his grasp. It's too late for him. He despised things that were spiritual when he was young. And now he can't grab hold of them when he's old. He allowed himself to believe that there's no value in spiritual things. But isn't it amazing how important now things are that seemed so valueless to him then? It's the error of Esau. And sadly, it's an error that has been repeated countless times and even exists to the present day. You see people that in the prime years of their lives, they take the position that there's no value in investing in my children. There's no value in having a close and strong relationship with God. There's no value in sowing spiritual things into a spiritual eternity. It's all about the here and the now. That's all that matters. And sadly, you see even Christians taking that position is that they walk with God in the beginning and there's an excitement. But when there comes a point when it costs something, they say, well, the value of holding on to what I have is greater than what I feel like I'll receive if I were to let it go for his sake. And so quietly, I'll choose to hold on to what I have and I'll allow distance to grow between me and my God. And you watch as they come to a point later in life where they live to regret the decision of their mind that maybe they never even told someone that they held. We see... Esau locked in a cage of his own bitterness and his weeping, now unable to find repentance and obtain the things that were now important. We see concerning Rebekah in verse 41, her outcome. It says that Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand and I will kill my brother Jacob. And these words of Esau, her elder son, were told to Rebekah. And she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said unto him, Behold, your brother Esau, as touching you, does comfort himself, purposing to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice, and arise, flee, run, to my brother Laban and Haran, and tarry with him for a few days until your brother's fury turn away, until your brother's anger turn away from you, and he forget that which you've done to him. And I will send and fetch thee from thence, for why should I be deprived of you both in one day? And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob take a wife of the daughters of Heth, such as these which are of the daughters of the land, what good shall my life do to me? And as Rebekah had done in the beginning, she does in the end. She counsels Jacob to leave. Jacob follows her advice. She manipulates the circumstance and gives kind of a false reason to Isaac to let him go. We don't want him marrying the daughters of Heth like Esau did his brother. He has got to go. The result of this whole episode for Rebekah is that she loses the son she was trying to protect. You see, this is the last time that Rebekah will lay eyes on Jacob 
this side of eternity. Because what she thought was just going to be a couple of days until the anger of Esau subsided turned out to be at least the rest of her life. The bitterness of Esau ran deep and days turned into months and into years and the message from Beersheba never came. It's safe for you to come home now. And for the rest of her life, she'll be estranged from this son because of this thing that she did in trying to take things into her own hand. It's interesting that she continues also as a manipulator and that she passes that same trait on to Jacob. And she never got to see how it would have worked out if she had just trusted God for his solution and how he was going to work it out. The outcome for Jacob, probably the saddest of all, as we see the outcome of the story and this whole deceptive thing that took place in their family. The outcome for Jacob is that he got the blessing. He obtained the thing that he was seeking for. The baton was passed to him, and Isaac pronounced riches, wealth, servitude of others, rulership over your brethren, blessing upon those that bless you, cursing upon those that curse you, a future, a name in the slot of those three. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob got it. Jacob got everything that he wanted, but you know what? He never got to enjoy any of it, for one day. Because of what Jacob did and the kind of person that Jacob became, the manipulator, the deceiver, the supplanter, the way that he would carry his affairs and sow actions and reap destinies in his own life, because of the way he became, he would come to the end of his life and being interviewed by the Pharaoh himself, he would testify out of his own mouth, Genesis chapter 47, verse 9. Being asked about his history, he would say, a hundred and however many years have been the days of my pilgrimage. Few and evil have been the days of my walk, and I have not obtained unto the life of my fathers. He would be rich and wealthy, and all of these things would come to pass. But the turmoil that would surround him in all of the other circumstances would keep him from enjoying the thing that he was seeking to obtain. There's an amazing thing that happens in life when we try to get something that we really want, but we try to get it outside of the way God wants to give it to us. And that is that maybe we obtain it, but we can never enjoy it. It happens in two ways that I've observed. It happens, number one, in the Frank Sinatra way. The I did it my way. I'm going to do this. I'm going to build this. I'm going to make my life what I want it to be. And a person will succeed. They'll do it their way. But along the way, the corners that they have to cut, the things that they have to do, the people they have to step on to get where they're trying to go, it builds a whole bunch of peripheral circumstances that rob the enjoyment of obtaining the things that they wanted. The other way that happens is the Monty Burns way. I know I've said this before, but the philosophy of life of Monty Burns is that I'll trade it all to have a little more. And listen, here's how it happens. And this happens so much more often, and this is where the Christian is susceptible. And that is that a person, a Christian, has a life. They have a spouse, a family, a career, a path, a history, a future. They have all this going on in them that God is working with. But all of a sudden, an opportunity presents itself. An old relationship, a connection with a, hey, I haven't heard from them in years, and there they are, and they're, they're writing me a, a letter, an email. 
They're reaching out to see how I'm doing. I'll just respond and see. It's no big deal. It's just a text message. It's just an email. It's just a FaceTime. It's no big deal. We'll just reconnect. We'll see how things were. I'll see how things are. But all of a sudden, it begins to play in the mind. What would my life be like if I had ended up with them instead of... What would my life be like if I lived in instead of... What would my life be like if I... And they begin to play with that. And sure enough, the bait is laid out. A subpath is kind of appearing. And the possibility of jumping from my present reality to my ideal circumstances presents itself. I wonder what would happen. And unfortunately, we see it all the time. We see someone who will say, I am willing to trade everything I have for an alternate reality to get the thing that I always wanted. But here's the irony. When they get it, they say it's not what I thought it would be. And they never enjoy the thing that they gave up everything in order to get. And sadly, it happens all the time. It's Jacob. He gets it, but he never enjoys it. I pray that that never happens to any one of us here today. I pray that you and I, rather than being deceived by the appetites of our flesh or by walking after our feelings or by walking blindly even though we can't see all things clearly, I pray that you and I are grounded enough in the truth of God our Father who is light and Him is no darkness at all. I pray that we're so driven of him and of his will and what he wants for our lives and that that moves us so much that we can't be pulled aside by the things this world can throw at us. I pray that the same spirit that raised up Jesus Christ from the dead that the Bible says lives in us is a strong enough light and beacon that we follow his leading and rely on his power and his wisdom and his grace in our lives to lead our paths. I pray that the faith that he stirs up enough us is enough for us to look at our circumstances, no matter what they are, and see them through the lens of eternity and the power of God and not in the physical, natural of this world and its limitations. And I pray that the word of God, the truth of God's word, the substance that he's laid out before us in his wisdom, that we might discern and know what's going on around us, would keep us in a place where we're insulated safely on the narrow path, kept from deception, and that we get to enjoy the plan that God has for us, that we grow into the blessing that he's ordained for our lives, that the fruit that he desires to cause to hang over the wall as it weighs down our branches comes to fullness, and we get to see on the other side all of it. It's his will for us. It's what he wants. And he's given us everything that we need to do it. Father, we thank you tonight for this precious truth. We thank you for your ways, O oh God. We thank you for what you've given. Lord, we recognize our frailty. We recognize our ability and vulnerability. And we would ask tonight, Lord, that you would give us a fresh filling with your spirit. That you would fill us again with faith. We pray, Lord, for those areas of our life where we have compromised, maybe secretly, and giving spiritual things a backseat for the prominence of worldly things. We repent, God, of the ways and of the times that we have neglected to pay a price. Perhaps you've asked us to lay something down or put something away.
And rather than obedience, we've chosen compromise. Tonight, Lord, we recognize the severity of the consequence. And Lord, we're asking you for fresh vision, for fresh faith, for fresh grace. We're asking you, Lord, that you would shine your searchlight on those areas of our heart that aren't fully surrendered to you. And that by your mercy and your spirit, you would empower us anew, that we would walk more closely with you. Lord, we don't deserve the things that we're asking for, but we greatly need them. So Lord, we pray that you'd show up for each one of us here, even right now. That as we sing this last song, as our hearts are settled, oh God, that you would make the changes, that you would work in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. We love you. We thank you for your faithfulness, that you are the good shepherd that gives his life for the sheep. We ask you to do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we?